Welcome to Unsupervised Learning. I'm Daniel Meisler, and this is a weekly show that explores the intersection of security, technology, and humans. I spend 5 to 20 hours a week consuming books, articles, and podcasts, which I then turn into a concise 15 to 30-minute summary and analysis. There's a summary episode every week, as well as periodic standalone episodes that are either me sharing an idea on a topic or discussing one with a guest. The goal is twofold, to keep you up to date on the absolute latest in security and technology, and to explore ideas that hopefully give you something to think about. All right, today I'm excited to be speaking with Renee Duresta. She is the technical research manager at the Stanford Internet Observatory, a cross-disciplinary program of research, teaching, and policy engagement for the study of abuse in current information technologies. Renee investigates the spread of malicious narratives across social networks and assists policymakers in devising responses to this problem. Renee has studied influence operations and computational propaganda in the context of pseudoscience conspiracies, terrorist activity, and state-sponsored information warfare. And she's advised Congress, the State Department, and other academic, civil society, and business organizations on the topic. Really happy to have Renee on Unsupervised Learning. And our conversation today covers her overall work, her work at the Internet Observatory Project with Stanford, number of the various conspiracies and disinformation campaigns that are in play right now, the complexity of attribution when looking at information campaigns, mapping campaigns to actor strategies, and many other topics. And with that, here is Renee DiResta. Cool. Well, I guess first off, thanks for coming on the show. I think I found you from either Sam or Joe's podcast. Yeah, I did. Um, I did Sam back in uh, like December 2018 or something. And then I did Rogan last year. Okay. Yeah. And at this point I, I see like multiple things per week and I'm just like, wow, I, I have to send this to her. Like, I wonder what she thinks about this. Like, Cause I know <laughs> you think about this stuff all the time. It's been busy. Yeah. It's been, uh, it's been busy. It's been a funny yesterday night wound up. I, I was, I thought I was gonna be working on one thing and then this, um, series of, uh, Facebook groups related to quarantine sprung up and somebody sent me a interesting comment on Reddit and was like, what do you think of this? And then I, you know, went down some bunny trail looking at what the, I mean, Reddit's full of like the most amazing investigative, uh, <laughs> just, you know, extremely passionate people. So it was, it was kind of cool to, uh, kind of get in there and um, have a look at what people were saying there. It just completely derailed like three hours of my night. I'd planned on doing something totally different. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Reddit always trips me out. Someone will be like, hey, I lost this bracelet in 1979. And someone will be like, hey, is it this one? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you're like, how did you do that? Yeah. Um, well, cool. Well, I'll do an introduction for you that I put before the show. But okay. to start off, like, how would you describe your work to other people? Yeah, so um, I'm the technical research manager at Stanford Internet Observatory. Um, I can talk a little bit about what SIO does, but as far as what I do personally, uh, I'm interested in how narratives spread online. Um, I'm particularly interested in state-sponsored activities, how states use social media, broadcast media, and the intersection of the two uh, in power dynamics and to achieve geopolitical aims. And then I also stay pretty heavily plugged into conspiratorial communities. Um, I actually got my start in this line of work, looking at the anti-vaccine movement beginning back in 2014. And, and I've just been uh, fascinated by that ever since. Mm. Awesome. And then um, I guess your work at the observatory is is very similar, but how is it different? Or Yeah, so SIO is an organization where we're one of the... Um, substructures within the Cybersecurity Policy Center. And so there's a range of, of different uh, orgs in there. Our focus is to uh, to look at how, again, how narratives spread online. So that is directly related. Um, we do kind of three rough buckets of work. We do uh, forensic analysis. So we work on understanding what happened after the fact, uh, looking at how a particular narrative or conspiracy theory spread or how election manipulation was conducted. Uh, we also look at proactive detection. So that's a big part of the work and that involves building technical capabilities uh, for things like anomaly detection or understanding uh, how communities behave. So we have a tech team and an analysis team in SIO. And then the last piece is policy. 
How do we translate the things that we find through these various research projects into recommendations for policymakers uh, and in communication to the public as well? And so uh, those are the, the policy stuff is generally longer term projects. Uh, Alex has been working on something with end to end encryption. You know, what is, how does the world change when mm-hmm. uh, messaging apps are encrypted? How do we think about that? The various stakeholders that are involved, how things will look different, and what policy recommendations should we be thinking about proactively uh, to those, you know, to, to either to mitigate the harms and, uh, and reap the benefits? Yeah, yeah, I love um, I love the main point that he's making there is that it's all about trade-offs. So if you go full end-to-end, you get one set of bad things, and if you go full transparency you get another set of bad things. And I think it's really healthy to think about that trade-off. I think that's absolutely true. I think that's the uh, one of the ways that we want to be thinking about just our communication environment, our information environment in general. Yep. There's a lot of really great uh, innovations that have, and even and, and ways that people connect, so social innovation, we can call them maybe, um, that have come about as a result of social networks and our information moving in that direction, there's just also, unfortunately, a lot of negative externalities. So how do you mitigate the bad stuff and uh, and elevate the good? And that, I think, is one of the interesting challenges that as we're, uh, you know, living through history is, is how we say it. <laughs> yeah. How do you uh, how do you think about these um, pivotal watershed moments where the technology enables a fundamental societal shift? And what are the new norms that develop or the new regulations that emerge uh, what are the technical guardrails that you put on and how do we think about the the change at the system level? Yeah, I love I love the work you're doing there. I, th- I think it's fantastic. I've been saying for a while that I think we need more economists in cybersecurity, which is, um, you know, what I've been doing for a long time. And it's like, and people are like, no, it's not about money. And I'm like, that's not what economics is about. It's about <laughs> trade-offs, right? You make a policy change, you pull a lever and some good things happen and some bad things happen. And it's like, it's all about managing that. Yeah, I agree. I was a, I was a trader for seven years when I lived in New York before I moved to the Valley in 2011. Um, and it's, it was a really interesting time. I started on wall street right when high frequency trading was becoming a big topic of conversation. Mm. The markets had had automation for quite some time, but this was where you know, in 2004, you really started to see the idea that, uh, automated trading, algorithmic trading was going to reduce spreads. It was going to put a lot of human brokers out of work. There was a lot of uh, efficiencies that it would deliver. And then, of course, there were also things like flash crashes and, um, you know, what we would call unethical uh, unethical patterns. Um, you know, you'd see people run machines designed to trick other people into trading with them. You know, that kind of thing, like mm. flash a quote, flash a quote and then pull it, that sort of stuff. Uh, and so there was really an interesting challenge for regulators at the time, which is this is clearly the direction things are going. So how do we think about what regulating uh, automated trading looks like? And so I happened to be uh, on Wall Street at the time, and it was just interesting to see the sort of the different ways that different regulatory bodies had different um, tools at their disposal, you know, the SEC versus FINRA versus the exchanges, mm-hmm. and then uh, how those different regulatory paradigms um, work together to try to maintain that improvement, those efficiency improvements, while at the same time dealing with the bad stuff that was coming in. Interesting. So that that again reveals this underlying thread of your work, which is you have this system, you have some sort of bad actor in it, and then you have ways of detecting and then ways of, through policy, you know, sort of cleaning it up. Yeah, I think it it was um, it was also an interesting time to be on. Well, I was there through two thousand eight through the financial crisis, and I left in two thousand eleven. So there was a certainly an interesting time, both in terms of what the regulatory changes were going to be, and then also uh, being there for you know for for a complete crash, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and for the. You know, again, watching those same regulatory bodies uh, step in nearly on a daily basis for a while there, the, uh, you know, the exchanges and um, rule changes that were coming through, just ways to ensure integrity in the market and how that was absolutely paramount, the feeling that if you, if people lost confidence, um, not confidence in the financial system, that was sort of, that's a whole other 
mm-hmm. can of worms, but more just in what they saw on their screens in front of them, just in terms of representation um, and ability to trade in the market was something that was if so carefully managed at that time. And it was interesting to come out here and then as things began to unravel a bit in tech to realize that there weren't quite the same organizational, uh, you know, there was no regulator. There was, in fact, Mm -hmm. no one in charge. (laughs) (laughs) So you had a different type of information market with absolutely no one in charge at all, Um, wholly self-regulatory and barely even that, not self-regulatory in the way that that Wall Street would would think about that term. Um, So it's... uh, yeah, it's been interesting to to come out here and see the kind of information integrity crisis a second time. Yeah, at a different phase of maturity. Interesting. Um, so we hear uh, terms like mis and disinformation. Like, how how would you make a distinction between different types of bad information? Yeah, so misinformation we think of as things that are just inadvertently wrong. There's no underlying motivation uh, that is inspiring someone to push out something wrong uh, in, in, in a misinformation case. So you can think of it even going back to the olden days of email forwards. You know, your your mom or your grandma, your well-meaning aunt sends you a thing about you know, your microwave is going to give you cancer or kill you or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's because they've read it and it's convincing. And and there's a genuine motivation to help people actually a lot of the time with misinformation. Like they really just want to share it because it either appeals to um, their sense that they're helping their community or their family mm-hmm. or, uh, or it reinforces a sense of an identity that they have, right? I am a member of my community who, uh, who, you know, ensures that people are informed. I am a, you know, I am a member of political party X and I want to ensure that this egregious thing that this other party did uh, is made clear to the world. Right. So it's it's much more about identity and and positioning and reinforcement within a community. Disinformation, what you see a lot more of is that's a deliberate intent. So the separation there is there's an intent to influence and an intent to deceive. So something about the communication is uh, not even false. We don't even say false. It's just, inauthentic is the word that um, that has stuck. And what that means is um, there's something about the communication where it has been manipulated or feigned in some way uh, to deceive someone. So the account saying it is a sock puppet persona or a bot, right? So there's inauthenticity mm. there. Um, the communication itself, the content has been altered in some way. Maybe it's a deep fake. Um, the, or it could even just be highly aligned propaganda, you know, something that's not a hundred percent false. It's got 10% truth, you know? (laughs) And so it's really hard to fact check that, you know, but, uh, but there's something about it that's been, uh, manipulated or intends to push people in a particular direction Interesting. Uh, or the dissemination pattern is inauthentic. It's, it's pushed out in concert, mass automation, um, a network of pages that don't disclose that they're all connected to each other and try to make themselves look like a whole lot of people hold the same opinion, even when that's, that's not true. They're all controlled by the same spam ring somewhere. Uh, so there's just a, it, it's a difference in intent and motivation most of the time. Mm, and then the authenticity piece. Is the underlying like definition or the underlying truth there, is it the disconnect between what the sender believes and what they're sending? Or I, I is think it that's about a good the medium? Way to put it. No, I think that's a good way to put it. I mean, misinformation and uh, proliferated, you know, again, email, uh, email chains, email forwards or chain letters or, you know, um, things that are inadvertently wrong in newspapers, right? Human beings get things wrong sometimes. Um, there's no malicious underlying intent uh, yeah. behind the error. So just something is wrong. It The velocity piece of it, the way in which information is spread today is fundamentally different. Um, so when we, when we talk about these challenges, disinformation is a, you know, you can go back to the there's an interesting, um, not to get super academic here, but there's a spectrum of propaganda, right? And uh, in academic literature, it's referred to as white, gray, and black. And white refers to propaganda that's an official state communication, right? Something produced by RT, you know where it's coming from. Uh, CGTN, you know that's Chinese media, right? Uh, Voice of America, for that matter, you know that it's American media. So there's this kind of, uh, the attributability is clear. But as you move down that spectrum, you get into the realm of, uh, some form of obfuscation, 
right? And by the time you get to black propaganda, you're looking at something where there's like a deliberate misattribution, in fact. So not only are they not claiming the source and the provenance, they're in fact actively trying to mislead people into thinking it's coming from somewhere else. And these are these are actually very old phenomena. This was in existence during the Cold War. You know, the phrase propaganda, the term even goes back to, oh gosh, the uh, the Romans. It referred to um, it re- referred to. It's embarrassing. I'm forgetting which which Catholic uh, <laughs> missive it was, but that's okay. It, uh, you, you can just insert yeah. <laughs> it when you do remember, and we'll, we'll put it in the right place. Okay, cool. Um, but so it, it really stretches back to very, very long ago in history. How do we think about how various entities have tried to use information to secure power uh, or to persuade people in a certain direction or to distract people in a certain direction? So these are all very old phenomenon. It's just that the difference now is that they're carried out on social platforms. So the velocity is substantially faster. You know, information travels almost instantly, particularly on Twitter and Facebook. Um, And the peer-to-peer participation, the sort of participatory nature of it is also very different. So it's no longer information being created by outsiders and given to us. We actually, all of us, become part of the process Uh, So something that was put out by an inauthentic actor, disinformation from Russia, for example, uh, appeals to a particular sensibility that we have, and then we in turn go on to spread it ourselves. And so we ourselves don't necessarily have that malign intent, but we don't understand the full provenance of where the information came from. So that's an Mm. an interesting dynamic in which people are increasingly... Uh, unwittingly recruited into becoming disseminators of this kind of content. Yeah, that that is interesting. Um, so, what are you currently seeing? I mean, it it seems pretty nasty out right out there right now. I mean, we have like COVID nineteen. We've got the like I think the current count is fifty three cellular masts in the UK burned down, <laughs> and yeah. then uh, the Bill Gates malaria like brain chip like conspiracy (laughs) there are so many bill gates conspiracies at this point the latest one though um yeah so gates has been a philanthropist in um public health vaccinations and also funds a range of technological innovations as well so he's a shame on him fairly yeah exactly (laughs) fairly broad portfolio um so a while back in in 2016 i think it was um a paper came out in which he talks, the, the researchers, he is the funder of the research, but uh, they, I think, had funding from elsewhere as well. But the researchers talk about uh, micro dot tattoos and uh, quantum tattoos, things that are potentially a way to keep vaccination records in parts of the world that don't have a lot of infrastructure. So they want to ensure that children are vaccinated against polio. They don't have necessarily the record-keeping capabilities. And so one of the parts of this research project was, um, could the vaccination incorporate some form of this like tattoo that would be read um, near field, very near field? There was no chip mm. in any way involved. It was just a, like a little mark on the skin. And so that's what this paper said. Um, that that kind of so that was that was from a, a while back. Uh, recently, more recently, I believe after COVID nineteen started, Gates did a Reddit AMA, and in that AMA mentioned that eventually it is highly likely that we're going to need some sort of way for people to demonstrate that they have the disease or the you know they have had the disease, mm-hmm. they have the antibodies, they've been vaccinated, something you know related to that. Um, for as a way to think about uh, frameworks for reopening society. Now, regardless of whether you agree or disagree, um, those two things were conflated, and this turned into uh, Gates is going to microchip you and track your movements, and mm. that intersected with some of the older vaccine uh, conspiracy theorists that back in January, actually, when, when the coronavirus first emerged, uh, were that Gates held the patent to the virus itself, was responsible for the outbreak, and that the outbreak was the new world order, of course, deciding to, uh, you know, to come for the people and to institute mass vaccination campaigns 
or to kill vast numbers of people. There's this depopulation agenda conspiracy as well. And this mishmash of conspiracy theories, of course, continues to propagate. Um, again, there have always been conspiracy theorists and yep. anti-vaxxers go back to the, you know, protesting the smallpox vaccine. So, you know, over a century ago at this point. Uh, and so what we look at in the age of the internet, though, that's interesting, uh, is ways in which these conspiracy communities find each other and cross-pollinate. And that's something that we started observing back in 2015 with Facebook's recommendation engine, where if you were a member of an anti-vaccine group, uh, it would refer you into other groups. You know, the way when you uh, go to your Facebook page, it's making suggestions to you yeah. all the time. You <laughs> might like this group, you might like that group. Yep. Well, unfortunately, um, <laughs> for people who were prone to a particular type of conspiratorial thinking, some of the flavors of anti-vaccination uh, beliefs are rooted in things like toxins and health and natural parenting and that sort of thing. And so the cross-pollination recommendations there would be more like chemtrails, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, Fluoride, Flat you know, with, yeah, these sorts of other pseudoscience conspiracies. But there was also a rising anti-government strain to the anti-vaccine community. And that one was focused more on the government is lying to you. Mm -hmm. Not only does MMR cause autism, but the government knows it and has been deceiving you this entire time. Yeah. And so the recommendation engine there also did begin to incorporate some of these more um, anti-government type conspiracy theories. And so Pizzagate, for example, was one of them. So if you were a member of an anti-vaccine group, you were getting recommended Pizzagate groups as well. Mm. Even if you had never typed the keyword Pizzagate into the search box, it was just that because of collaborative filtering, which is a, a type of uh, algorithm you can use in a recommendation engine that says that instead of only showing me content related to content that I engage with and consume, show me content that other people who are like me yeah. engage with and consume, right? And so that's a different Netflix pathway. Style. That's Yeah, exactly. So people who are like you, you know, I'm a mom in San Francisco. What are moms in San Francisco like here? You might like this. Mm -hmm. If you don't engage with it, you're not going to see a ton more of it, but it is going to broach the idea because it enables the platform to keep you on site or enables Netflix to keep you watching, right? Usually these things are just serendipitous and great, but then occasionally uh, there was this sort of uh, dark side to them. So you did see a lot of... Um, omni-conspiratorial communities build. QAnon is one of them, where there's some element of the conspiracy that is distinct and unique, but then as it attracts new adherents, they come in and they add their own sort of personal bugaboo to it. And so now um, most of the QAnon communities are also anti-vaccine, they're also anti-5G, you know, and so it just kind of perpetuates through this uh, this mishmash of people talking to each other and being uh, offered up suggestions and put into these particular communities. Yeah. What seems really scary about what you described is there are ways to get from a fragment of truth, like to this other fragment of truth and to like weave these things together. And then you have a lot of these people are smart in, in some, in some way. Right. And right. they're just taking all these pieces and linking them together and then to someone who is like, no, that's not true, they can then dump this thing of pseudo evidence on them about things that actually did happen, which is very confusing to someone who's vulnerable to this. Yes. That's so there, nasty. There is a, um, you're likely to see things that are going to be appealing to you, right? Yeah. I mean, that, that is one of the interesting ways in which personalization has, has impacted um, the communities that we wind up in. Um, we called it, I, Venkatesh Rao from Ribbon Farm and I were talking a lot about this and bespoke realities was the, uh, <laughs> was the phrase that, oh, that's a great term. um, that, uh, that I wound up using for it in an essay I wrote. And, um, it was the idea that you have a finite amount of attention, you have a finite amount of time. And mm -hmm. so you pull out your phone, you go to your app and the thing that is at the top of your feed is something that the platform has decided is something you are likely to want to engage with. I can say for myself, you know, that means that a lot of it's accurate. <laughs> it really is. It's great. Yeah. Um, it means that I do see, in fact, content from people that I think are really interesting or topics that are fascinating to me. And, and so there's a real value there. There's a real serendipity to that. Uh, the problem is without 
you know, without some form of constraint. And the question is always like, what is that form? How do you decide who yeah. decides what that constraint looks like? Uh, but that is the, I think that is one of the interesting pivotal challenges of, of our information ecosystem at this time, actually, is how do you do ethical curation? And yep. I think that is um, a thing that, even even during COVID-19, it's really been brought to the surface in a lot of ways. How do you surface information that's authoritative without only surfacing information that is institutionally authoritative? Because those two things are very different, right? Yeah. Um, as we saw with some of the CDC and World Health communication in this particular pandemic, they haven't been that great at communicating. They don't communicate at the speed of of internet virality. They just don't, which in some ways is fantastic, right? Because you yeah. don't want scientists rushing to like get the scoop to get the most clout with the most likes on Twitter. You want them actually doing the work and then saying the thing when they understand what it is they're saying. But at the flip side, when there is no institutional authoritative information or when the institutional authoritative information is too slow to update, then there's a, a real question there, which is like, how do you fill the void? What do you put in its place? Yeah. And that I think is, um, you know, in the era of uh, no human gatekeepers, <laughs> yep. um, what do we expect? You know, how do we want the platforms and the um, curation algorithms to behave? I think that's one of the interesting things that we're all struggling to understand. Um, that very key pivotal decision that I think really shapes our information environment in the near term. Yeah, yeah. So. I have a question for you around misinformation, like motives and how they might connect to strategy. So there was a really cool report came out recently from Booz Allen. Um, they're a security consultancy and they uh -huh. released a report. Have you seen this report? Um, I is think it, it is one of my open browser tabs, embarrassingly. <laughs> I imagine you have many. Um, yeah. So they looked at a like 200 different, I can't remember the actual number. It was I think it was multiple hundreds of cybersecurity incidents that had been yes. attributed to Russia. And then they went and found this document uh, called the Russian Military Strategy Document, which is a good name for that, I guess. But um, they looked at that and it had, I think, 23 th themes. It was 23 risk categories to Mother Russia, basically. And then what they did was they took those 200 campaigns and they mapped them to those 23 categories and said, you know what, if we just listen, the adversary might actually tell us what they're trying to do. And then when we look at their campaigns, you know, their cyber campaigns or whatever, maybe we could just match these up and have a lot more insight in what they're trying to accomplish. And I, I thought it was a super cool concept. And I was wondering, like, if anyone was thinking in this way, you're probably thinking in this way in your project. And um, is, is there anything out there like that? Or are you working on anything like that? Yeah, so there's a few things. There's there's a lot of really interesting work that's that's been done in the past in cybersecurity with regard to attribution methodologies and frameworks. There's the concept of advanced persistent threats, mm -hmm. right? So the recognition that some adversaries uh, persist and you can identify them based on certain tools that they use, uh, signatures that they leave behind. Um, there's a, a descriptor, TTP is the abbreviation, um, Tactics, Techniques, and Procedures. Yep. And so um, MITRE, M-I-T-R-E, and a few other organizations maintain repositories of these advanced persistent threats, these threat actors. Um, there's a kind of matrix of... Uh, things that they have been known to do, ways that they have been known to operate. Yep. And so one of the things that we began to do at Stanford, uh, and I've also seen research on this out of Princeton as well, um, and uh, I think Sarah Jane Turp and Clint Watts and Bruce Schneier have also uh, written about this idea. People who have some cybersecurity background that are looking at influence operations now as, as we are at SIO, um, thinking about what are the ways in which we can come up with those similar attribution frameworks and TTPs uh, related to influence operations. Yeah. That's because attribution is a challenge. It's very, very hard, um, particularly if you are a researcher on the outside, you have visibility into certain behaviors, certain network types, information flows, content, clusters of persistent communities, and how they behave 
uh, baseline versus how they behave anom uh, anomalously. Mm -hmm. um, but what we don't have is visibility into the email addresses, the IP addresses, you know, certain login times, uh, any of the things, indications of automation, uh, what API was used to push what uh, post at what time, et cetera. So we can see things that look like coordination, but we can't really gauge to what extent they're inauthentic or malicious coordination. And so we try to work on attribution and uh, assessments of whether something is a, an influence operation that has crossed a line with platforms. And then other stakeholder types include civil society, which oftentimes is the, you know, people in their community are the target of the operations. And so they'll try to flag things like, hey, this, this is in the uncanny valley. This doesn't look like what I would expect my community to produce. Yep. Uh, you also have government, which recognizes financial flows, right? Money flows, information flows, things that government actors have visibility into that uh, platforms and researchers and civil society don't. So how do we find ways to collaborate on these processes? Uh, and that's some of the organizational stuff that um, a number of different universities and governments and um, platforms have tried to ensure that we have adequate information sharing while protecting privacy. On the flip side, there's the question of how do we come up with these specific matrices related to influence operations? Yeah. So how do we aggregate our knowledge of TTPs and ways that state actors behave versus ways that mercenaries behave versus ways that spammers or domestic ideologues behave uh, and use those, those signals, I guess, is a, is a, is a way to put mm -hmm. it. Um, to synthesize more information about the operation as a whole and to have this repository of, of past influence operations. Some of the, you know, the entities that, that's been the, um, the best at this, uh, Twitter puts out all of the content that it takes down now. So when something comes down for coordinated inauthentic behavior, anyone can go and grab those tweets, which is fantastic because it's a really amazing way to just put it out to the public, right? Yeah. Uh, arm, armchair sleuths, people who are just fascinated by this stuff can actually go see it firsthand, dig into it, and occasionally find really interesting signal in there. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I've had a lot of interaction with MITRE over the years. That's specifically what I was thinking about is if someone in MITRE could get involved and try to do some sort of mapping here. I, I wonder, though, I don't know what some limitations may be because it's so tied to a particular type of attack. Mm -hmm. It's it's a little more constrained, right? Your your operational playing field is um, determined for you by what the platforms put out for you to use, right? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, so adversary. So you don't want to. One, one of the challenges is, and we um, teach both junior researchers and students this stuff too at SIO. Uh, you don't want to over-index on past behavior or past content as yeah. too great a signal. Um, sophisticated state actors do evolve away from things that have been discovered and burned. Um, whereas when those things are put out into the public domain, you do see domestic groups and others realize like, hey, I can do that too. And, and so then there's like this kind of range of copycats. Um, so there's a little bit of that dynamic at work. So you want to make sure that you're not looking for signals from the last war, so to speak. Yeah, um, totally. that you're always thinking more adversarially about what is possible. And that and that goes for the platforms are more aware of this too, right? Which is when you change a feature, when you change a rule, when you change a policy, there are always going to be people who are going to walk right up to that line, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> and figure out how that or figure out how that policy change has just advantaged them in some way. Yeah. So when you make it so that um political ads are registered and disclosed and you have to, you know, mail in a postcard or they mail you a postcard and you type in a number to verify that you are the person you say you are in your ads account. Well, that's something that is going to reduce abuse by some subset of people who don't want to go through that process. But at the same time, then you'll see state actors go and begin to hire out to mercenary organizations that do go through that process. Uh, and so you see the formation of front groups and mercenaries in response, right? Mm. So there's a there's always this um, platform changes the rules to close a loophole or stop a behavior that was used in a particular malign way in the past. That doesn't mean that they're going to close up shop and go home, right? The bad guys are still going to try to find ways around that rule change. And so, uh, so you expect to see the adversary evolve. And so as platforms are making these changes, thinking adversarially about 
all of the different ways that this can play out uh, is a part of that development process. Yeah, interesting. And what about starting from the other side? So like if if we were to know that a particular actor wanted to foster internal fighting within the US, which we saw with those like live Facebook groups, I, I think you actually talked about it in one of your podcasts, but they physically got both sides of the confrontation to be in like the same parking lot. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that was uh, outside of, yep. It was uh, the Dawa uh, Islamic center in Houston. Yeah. Uh, was the most notorious of those. Yeah. Yeah. So you have like, okay, foster internal infighting. You have like, okay, the U S is falling from grace internationally, right? You have like um, just different overall arching themes. Like, you know, we want to reduce the U.S. in the mind of the international community so that Russia or China can take that leadership position. And then that's like your highest level order thing. And then you have campaigns that operate within that that might help one especially, but maybe it maps to others. It's almost like a like a mind map that goes from an overall big strategy to a campaign within it. And then I don't know. I just wonder if that's possible to do technologically. The problem is you would have to assign like the weighting to the maps. Like you said, attribution is just super hard. You could say, well, it looks like this is related to this, but maybe not. I mean, do you, do you think that these groups that are actually executing these things that, you know, they have coffee budgets and they have parking lots and they go in <laughs> and they just go to work to do these they campaigns? They do, yeah. No, they actually do. Yeah. <laughs> um, the Internet Research Agency for sure does. And uh, a lot of the way that this has manifested in the Middle East, um, Saudi Arabia and Egypt in particular, is the hiring of mercenary organizations, literally social media managers who do the dirty work of, uh, of the people in power. They don't run their own um, government sponsored in a government office with mm-hmm. government benefits group. They just outsource it to uh, to it, what what looks to be, in fact, actually a handful of different mercenary organizations, uh, and just say like, you know, you run the you run the campaign, asking the questions about what happened to Jamal Khashoggi, and making sure that it doesn't look like Saudi Arabia had anything to do with it, right? Right. Um, so that's so you do you, they do in fact literally go to work. <laughs> get their coffee, sit at their desk, you know, mm-hmm. meet their quotas. And, um, you know, one thing we saw with the IRA that was really fascinating to me was the way in which certain accounts uh, would switch topics um, annually. So, <laughs> oh. so it, was, it was literally, there is this account. It became Army of Jesus, which, and which I think anybody who's followed Russian influence operations has seen the pictures of like Hillary and, and Jesus fighting, you know, not to, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that was, that was from this page called Army of Jesus. When I first got the data set, Army of Jesus, everything in the folder attributed to Army of Jesus, it started out with a bunch of Kermit the Frog memes. And I was like, what the hell am I looking at? Did did somebody screw up a data poll? Um, but, and then I had to go and actually read, you know, the hundreds of thousands of, of posts. And as I was reading through the army of Jesus content, it did in fact start out as a Kermit the Frog meme page. And then you see about, um, it was either six months or a year. I don't remember off the top of my head, but some, some really clear calendar period after it started, uh, it switches to being a Simpsons meme page. And the guy who's running the account actually says like, hi, this is Homer. I'm taking over this account. Um, Kermit is dead now. Now it's mine. And then it becomes a Simpsons meme page. And then all of a sudden, again, that same amount of time elapses and all of a sudden, then it's army of Jesus. And then it just starts off with hashtags about Jesus. So I don't know what the people who thought they were following the Simpsons page or the Kermit page (laughs) thought that, you know, all of a sudden they're following this, this weird religious account. Um, but what seems to happen is that that religious account then actually does nail it, right? Mm-hmm. Then it gets traction. Then it has an audience. The like for Jesus memes that they're putting out constantly drive engagement and push their content in front of more people. And as they gradually politicize Army of Jesus, they continue to grow this audience. So it is very much the way if you were running a media campaign and you know you were failing at one narrative, you know, one theme wasn't working, you kind of pivot to the next, pivot to the next. And so you saw this with a number of accounts. There were a few that were um, pretended to be local news before all of a sudden becoming anonymous type, uh, you know, you're anon news mimics. Um, and so there was this, this sense that, that that was what was happening. They were running it like a media organization. Is it 
Is it also, are they trying to establish trust with the algorithm so that like this is a legit account? One thing that Russia does that I have not seen from any other state actor is that is that willingness to play the long game, right? There is a remarkable um, multi-year commitment to persona building in mm. what you see from from Russian accounts, uh, whether that be IRA or GRU or um, or you know they have a range of different entities that run these things, uh, but both the IRA and the GRU have this extensive commitment to. Uh, to this long-term, long-term persona building, uh, in, in a way that to, to contrast that, like I said, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, um, most of their stuff appears to be run by third-party social media managers. Mm-hmm. And if you go through the content, and anybody can, because Twitter stuff is public now, um, what you will see is these were just spam bots, right? That then are acquired at some point or they were created as spam bots and they just like let them run automated crap all day long um and then all of a sudden they're put to work at a time when they need to be used for political messaging china same thing the hong kong protest bots uh or you know we use bot as shorthand um for inauthentic account it's it's kind of sloppy language most of them are operated by people they will start out as bots meaning they just start out putting out repetitive garbage automated content but mm-hmm. then eventually a human operator kind of takes them over and that's when they start to do the real work and so in the china accounts also uh, you see compromised accounts um, you see accounts that were originally spam bots and then all of a sudden they flip and begin to speak chinese or they flip and begin to talk about the hong kong protests right around the time that china decides that it needs to be doing that work and putting those narratives out uh, to global audiences. And so that, again, this was not China doing the work of, you know, painstakingly building up personas over a period of four years. They just bought accounts that were created four years ago. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. Hmm. Um, yeah. I just wonder if it's possible to do similar to like the, the Booz Allen thing and basically have whatever it is, 10, 15, 20, like, overarching meta strategic goals for someone like China or Russia or whatever. And it's just like foster internal, you know, strife, um, Mm -hmm. you know, embarrass the U S make them look stupid, um, propagate the actual disease by countering the, the vaccine movement. I don't know. I just, it feels like it could be too tenuous, but well, one of the challenges with over-indexing on the content is that they is that the content is belie- like these are opinions that real legitimate people hold to, right? Yeah. So, so the, the the you've got the strategy, which is what you've articulated, and the tactics would be putting this out using um, various forms of media, fake accounts, so on and so forth. Um, but one of the things that we're always trying to evaluate is, you know, we call it like content voice and dissemination is is the um, terminology that, that we've used for a while. Um, the content is one signal, but some of it is also it's it's too hard. If you if you pay too much attention to the content, um, you'll miss the fact that there are actually like there are real people, you know tankies right <laughs> people yeah. on the far far left who also sincerely hold these pos- these political positions and so you don't want to misattribute or um mistake a real far left activist as a russian troll for example uh because or real far right activists as a russian troll because they do both um but so you have this this problem of uh you know, if you if you if you're drawing too much of your signal on what the content is or what the narrative is yeah, or what you're the right. meme is, you kind of delegitimize the grievance, and that and that doesn't really help anybody either. So that's why we're always evaluating: like, is the dissemination pattern in some way malign? Is the voice, meaning the account, um, fake? Right? Or what? What can we say about these three factors together: the content, the voice, and the dissemination pattern? And can we, if if a sufficient amount of, you know, the factors involved in each of those is anomalous, then it indicates further research is needed. And that's actually when, for us, 
Uh, that's when we take it to other researchers. So we will reach out to, you know, to Bellingcat or to DFR Lab, who do great work, um, to Graphica, to, I mean, there's a range of, um, you know, to, to Facebook, Twitter, Medium, um, yep. and just say, hey, you guys should have a look at this too. So it has become a much more collaborative process. Um, that piece of, we have the signal. And, you know, with when we were doing some of the work on the GRU, we actually gave some stuff to Bellingcat and I was like, tell me why we're wrong. You know? yeah. <laughs> we're, we believe this person doesn't exist. Like, please prove this wrong. You know? <laughs> yeah. um, and so that's the, so, so it's much more of like a, uh, how can we, uh, how can we methodically check and recheck before making an attribution claim? And even when you read the language on attribution, um, you'll notice there's a difference between this is a GRU asset yeah. versus um, this is a highly suspicious asset that appears adjacent to the operation in the following way. Hundred percent. Right? Yeah. And so that so we try to maintain that division of of specificity when we talk about these things because the last thing you want to do is give the real adversary something to be like you know look at these idiots they got it wrong here so of course they got it wrong here too right um, or the other problem is you falsely attribute malign intent to a real activist and then you've you know that's not a thing that uh, that we want to be doing either because real people do hold these positions yeah no i love that subtlety there i mean you could almost look at like for a given type of signal or whatever you could have like a tag like where did it originally come from well it originally came from the left but now we're seeing this this boost signal coming from this malicious actor and that would be way different than something created by that actor. Um, yeah, no, that that and that's absolutely true. I think one of the things that's been interesting about the Internet Research Agency memes, for all the people who sit there and you know fight about did this have an impact? You know, the only impact they care about is like did it swing the election? And the answer is like we really don't know. We don't have uh, nobody on the outside has the ability to to make those determinations. Um, but one thing we do see is those memes and that content continue to be shared by real people, real activists today. Yep. And that's because it was effective propaganda. Yep. And so, <laughs> so when we talk about impact, there's also the interesting question of, did this nudge somebody just a little bit further into entrenchment in a particular position? Did it nudge somebody away from a particular position? Did it demotivate them from going out to vote? You know, like there, there are a lot of different degrees of impact and I, one thing I saw that was interesting was um, there was an IRA meme that they used on the right. And it was uh, the back of a guy. He's got a patch on his back, like a motorcycle jacket with a patch. Mm -hmm. And it says something about like how illegals need to learn English, right? Mm -hmm. In my country, right? You know, you need to learn English if you're going to stay here or whatever is the general gist of the patch. Um, so it was meant to be inflammatory. And they shared it into their far right pages. And it got a whole bunch of likes. And, you know, it's like rah, rah, like, yes, right on, man. So I saw that meme hit Twitter just about maybe four or five months ago, but it was actually being pushed by a left-wing activist as a, like, look at what these idiot conservative racists believe. Oh, goodness. Right? <laughs> oh, goodness. <laughs> and that went viral. I mean, they were like, you know, it got retweeted into my feed and I saw it and I was like, holy shit, I know that meme. You know? Because <laughs> <laughs> my brain is like a repository reason. of like crap at this point. But <laughs> I was yeah. like, I know that meme. I've seen that before. You know, and I tried like it was a it was a guy who was a um I'm sure he didn't know. He was a big Kamala Harris supporter, actually. It was was um was his bio on Twitter and you know, blue check. And I tried replying and I was like, hey, just so you know, like that meme's been put to use in other ways. Like, here's how. But you know, of course, my my reply to that tweet that had like forty thousand shares was like, you know, twenty likes or whatever. <laughs> mm -hmm. <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> so there's the problem of like, how do you how do you tell people like what it is, right? I mean, that that's that's one of the uh, one of the interesting challenges. Um, so they they shared it to the conservatives, and this guy shared it as, look what these stupid conservatives believe, and. Uh, and it, and it, <laughs> it went viral in both communities. That is so. so insane. So you could have something created by a bad actor broadcasted by real people who believe it. You can have the opposite. And then you can have the opposite on both sides where they're sharing with their own communities as an example of the evil of the other side. Yep. That is, and that's so hard to untangle in like all the propagation, like attribution. Yeah, well, it's it's... 
you know, one of the things is you say like, hey, that came from, that was used in this operation. Yeah. Uh, or that, that, or that came from here. Um, and then the response you get is like, yeah, well, who cares? It's true. Right. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, and so <laughs> that was the, uh, you know, the response from um, some of the investigative journalists went and talked to people who had actually been in touch with the internet research agency trolls unknowingly. Uh, you know, they DM'd them and were like, hey, we'll send you money for this protest. We'll, you know, hire a Hillary Clinton impersonator and have her sit in the back of a, a flatbed truck in a, in a jail outfit, right? And we'll send you money for this, and you know, that kind of thing. And so they were engaging with real activists in America. Um, and so uh, investigative journalists, like, kind of tracked down some of these people and asked them about it. And the response was like, well, who cares if it came from Russia? Like, <laughs> Hillary's a bitch and I got some money to, you know, tell the world, right? Yeah. Yep. Yep. <laughs> so I, I don't know what you do with that. That's just a um, defense mechanism, maybe, I hope. But um, but that is that is that is part of the problem, right? Which is, um, it does get at the fact that one thing we see also, um, the Russians didn't only create their own original content, they piggybacked on real American content. Um, And so that means that the provenance of the original meme is not even in fact theirs. Uh, So there there are very real segments of the American public who, you know, who hold these beliefs. And so... We, we, you know, the question is like, um, what do you do about that? That's an underlying societal problem that bad actors are able to take advantage of. That's, that's not a thing that you fix with social media. That's a, that's uh, a social problem. Yeah, there's got to be geniuses over here in the IRA who are just like, just know every single thing about American culture and can look at one meme and be like, oh, this is going to be it, and start a whole campaign. I'm just. Imagining that's got to be a world. Um, so here's a practical question for you that hopefully will help uh, listeners. What what do you do when you look at content? Like what tips you off that oh this is this looks like it's bad. Obviously it's a finely honed skill over many many years. But like do you have any things that just jump out at you? And how do you investigate further when you do get suspicious? Yeah, I well first of all there's like there's lots of really interesting communities, particularly on Reddit um, where people keep track of interesting things that they see or anomalous things. And I really like um, participating in, uh, in those spots. So for people who are interested in investigations, that and Twitter are both great places to, uh, to find interesting things. Um, I consume information. I follow people in every political set and subset of domestic American politics for sure. Um, as well as following prominent white propaganda accounts from state media. So I follow a bunch of Chinese and Russian uh, state media properties. Mm. Um, because per your point about narratives, like they do telegraph what, what they want to say. Yeah. <laughs> it's not subtle at all, actually. Totally. Um, and, and you can also see, by the way, who they're inviting on as guests, which is interesting, too. There's this fabulous thing that state media does where when they don't want to do something too direct and overt, meaning like they don't want to say something absolutely outrageous. They go and they find some kook and they invite them on as a guest. And then they ask that guy questions. And then that guy <laughs> says it, you know, <laughs> uh, so they broadcast excellent. the thing. They just like sit there and let them talk. And this is the thing that RT in particular is like elevated to an art form. They've oh, been doing yeah. it for so long now where they'll get some like, you know, some random American who thinks like in the most innocuous example, like thinks they talk to aliens and are visited by aliens. And they'll be like, you know, it appears the Americans aren't really giving serious credence to this, but let's <laughs> listen to her talk, you know? <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, so, so that is a, I, I really do pay attention to like, you know, what narratives are coming out of there. Um, and then domestically, just again, just understanding where, where the, you know, where the pulses are. I feel like it's made me less partisan in a lot of ways <laughs> over the yeah. last three years. Um, just this sort of, uh, steady exposure to the kind of entirety of what's out there. If something feels too outrageous to be true, mm-hmm. um, that's usually where I will start to do uh, like a fact check at least. Like, is this, 
is this plausible? Is this actually what was said? Mm-hmm. I've also been, I mean, I've also had like, you know, weird articles written about me, right? Where I'm like, I didn't actually say that. That's not, it's not <laughs> like, here's the quote in the legitimate paper. Here's how it got laundered in like RT or Sputnik writing, you know, the, their variant on what they want the world to think I said, right? Um, and so having been on the receiving end of that, it's, uh, I do actually try to go back and check and see. Oh yeah, uh, what, that's what that, the person actually said. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I remember. I, I think I posted something. Probably it was probably a long time ago, like a year, year and a half ago, and it was on Reddit. And I was like, "Yeah, have you seen her work? Like she covers this stuff." And then they just went off on some tangent. I'm like, "Where are you getting this? This is insane. Are you like actually reading her bio?" And they're like, "No, she's part of the whole system." And I'm like, "Damn, you guys." Are yeah, crazy. Well, I mean, you're you know you're, yeah. <laughs> I used to like you. I said I. I well, it's, I mean, there's there's so much good on Reddit also, but it's the it's easier to discredit a person than to reject a an idea or or address an idea, and yep. so um, so I do, you know, try to go back to the primary source and and actually sit there and see like, is this what this person actually said, or was this a oversimplification for a clickbait headline or a uh, or a hit job, right? And so it just it takes time to do that and it's very frustrating. So I feel like the heuristics are really like, you know, evaluate the source and then evaluate how it makes you feel and think before you share. And those would be the the kind of most basic um, ways for evaluate the source. It's like, is this a domain I recognize? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then the how it makes you feel piece really it's, Righteous indignation, I think, is one of the big motivators yes. for why people share online. It's, um, it's again, it's it's the same, you know, for the conversation we were just having. Like, look at these idiots who believe this thing, right? Um, sharing that meme, um, then the reshares and the likes and the things that go along with that are, it's it's like a you know, it's like a virtual right on, right? It's a, I agree with you. I'm signaling my my belief in this as well, my participation in this particular political tribe, and um, you know. So almost more of like share as identity reinforcement. There's been some interesting studies on how many people actually click through and read the article before hitting the share <laughs> button. <laughs> I imagine it's that was low. one of my things where I was like, you know, if, if Renee around the world, like, <laughs> yeah. just the um, maybe you can't hit the share button until you've actually clicked through and read the link. You know? <laughs> yep. Yep. Just as far as like injecting some friction maybe into the uh, into the rage machine, just slowing it down just a little bit oh. if you go and actually read the thing because a lot of times this is the challenge this is where i think media is culpable in a way um as everybody competes for attention this is where the phenomenon of headlines that you know are kind of contradicted three sentences into the article uh you have that or you have um somebody told me once i wish i could remember who it was if the headline is phrased as a question the answer is almost always no did so and so do this you know <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. um you know, it's because they can't actually say it, right? Like, if, if you could say so-and-so said yeah. this, meaning verbatim said this, then that's how you would phrase it as opposed to did so-and-so do this. Um, yep. So there was, a, so even things like that, like when you actually get into the specifics, it is not the same as what's in the headline. And I always feel like that's one of the challenges in the need to compete for attention, the need to try to, like, get the most clicks. That sensationalism really is seriously detrimental um for society in fact right it's just people clicking the share button because they're outraged by the headline and want everybody else to see it yeah absolutely well i'm looking at the clock here and before i let you go i want to ask you a couple questions here if you could recommend any book or books to get people started in your field what would they be oh that's a great question um somewhat obscure, but there's a book by Jacques Ellul, E-L-L-U-L, and it's just called Propaganda. Um, oh, that was, yeah, that's a f- fantastic book. Yeah, and that was one that, <laughs> this is, uh, you know, here, embarrassing confession. I actually hadn't read Ellul until maybe a year ago. I'd read a lot of Bernays and a lot of Lipman and sort of the old canon of propaganda, but I had not really spent much time on Ellul. And then the book, you know, I, I got it and I read it and I, I just felt like, 
you know, everything I thought I had thought of <laughs> or discovered or like yep. had as like a first principle thought was like in there. And I was like, oh my God, this is like 1960s, you know, kind of contemporary right. of McLuhan, yep. right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think like that return to history um, is a great place to get started because it really grounds you in what is actually new and different, right? Which is much more of a distribution mechanics uh, thing. Yeah. And Elul's entire concept is propaganda as a function of a technological system, right? This mm. is what technology enables. Um, and he, of course, is talking about very different types of technology. You know, the internet didn't exist then, but it is such a fantastic book for, for thinking about um, the issue in those terms. And then as far as like interesting you know, Russia stuff, there's um, the Matryoshkan archive or um, Thomas Ridd just put out a new book called Active Measures that I've only seen snippets of, but I'm mm. very excited about that one. That's uh, for people who are interested in the um, the Russian, uh, Russian content. Mm. Um, and I think another, I'll give one other recommendation. Um, Martin Gurry's Revolt of the Public is really excellent also as far oh. as thinking about, uh, again, the... Um, he traces the diminishment of institutional authority, looks at things like the Arab Spring, uh, and looks very specifically at the rise of populist movements and the sort of internet-powered dynamics um, around the erosion of authority. Mm. And so it's also a great book for thinking about ways in which this stuff um, manifests today. Yeah, and is manifesting right now for us. Yeah, that's uh, interesting. Actually, Propaganda was not the book I was thinking of. It was Influence. Um, yeah. So I'll, I'll still have to read the Propaganda one. That's awesome. Um, what do you read when you're not reading in your field? Hmm. Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Twitter, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm, at, no, I'm, I'm on Twitter all the time. It's embarrassing how many – I always joke around about, like, oh, it's for work, but – I get that thing from Apple that, you know, pushes you your consumption at the end of the week and it's like mortifying. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, but no, I, I love Twitter. I mean, I, I follow a bunch of doctors. So lately I've been reading a lot of the, uh, the epidemiological work on COVID-19, the medical papers and stuff that's coming out on that. Um, I follow a lot of finance people from the old days on wall street. So mm. there's a lot of uh, great stuff that comes out of that. Um, I like the Atlantic a lot. Uh, wired. Oh, I saw you um, just did a piece in the Atlantic. Yeah, I just started doing some stuff for them. I I love it because it's an opportunity to um, like two thousand words is okay, which is great. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like sometimes getting things down to eight hundred words means you leave three quarters of it out. So mm-hmm. it's been nice to uh, to work with editors who are interested in like draw the through line, like explain it in historical context, explain it in geopolitical context. Uh, so instead of just you know, at Stanford Internet Observatory, like we we want to break things as quickly as possible. We're distinctly different than academia in that regard, meaning um, the peer-reviewed research comes later. The here is what happened in this particular influence operation that Twitter has just put out a data set on, like that comes out quickly uh, or if it's related to a narrative that is spreading immediately. That's because we want to help people understand things in a timely fashion, not two years after it goes through a review process. Um, So there's, so we do put out a lot of blog posts, but those are much more of like, here are the facts of this thing. And so it's nice to also do some writing that explains like, here are the facts of this Chinese propaganda piece. And also here is how China has leveraged propaganda over the last 20 years. So. Yeah. That makes sense. Well, it was great having you. Yeah, it was great chatting with you. Yeah. And I did remember that Pope thing. <laughs> oh. It was the, okay. <laughs> if you're interested. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Uh, it was in, uh, it was 1622. It was the Committee for the Propagation of the Faith. It was just related to countering the Reformation. Awesome. And can you let us know what you have uh, coming up in the near future and where people can find you online? Yeah. Um, so, Stanford Internet Observatory blog is where we put out the most recent stuff. Uh, So probably like every two weeks, there's a post there. And we have such a great group of researchers, um, everything from, you know, international election integrity to Russian influence operation to attribution methodology. So um, we've got a little mailing list there. And then I'm just on Twitter uh, as at no upside. Awesome. 
Well, keep doing this work. It is fantastic. Love following your stuff. And uh, it's great chatting with you. Great chatting with you too. All right. Thanks for listening to this episode of Unsupervised Learning. I believe ads are not just annoying, but that their incentive structure is toxic to the content creation process. So if you enjoy the show, please consider supporting it directly for just $5 a month or $50 a year, which is two months for free. UL members get the newsletter each week instead of just twice a month. They get access to the archives. They get access to the UL Slack community, where we share ideas and links about the topics we discuss here in the podcast. They also get access to the UL Book Club, where we pick a book a month and talk about it live as a group. To become a member, just head over to danielmeesler.com slash subscribe. And thank you so much to everyone who's already a member. Each of you is helping support a model of content creation that we really need right now. And I appreciate you greatly. We'll see you next time.